Well, hello, night timers. This is William Hellfire here with Ross Snyder, and this is the commentary for Mail Order Murder. So, uh, yeah, what's going on, Ross? Hey, uh, this is the smaller studio building, which is in Gary's backyard. Um, and this is a real trip because, um, as you can see through the doorway there, uh, each room is like fashioned as a different wave set. So as you walk through, you have the doctor's office and then there's like a dungeon and then you walk into the next room and it's like a bar and a restaurant set. And so that's where the majority of the wave features are, are filmed at this point. Yep. And you got, uh, also in Gary's basement, he had a couple of rooms like didn't he have a dungeon in his basement I yeah think, on one side and then like there was like an office on the other side that had like a like a little computer that was like from like 1994 yeah <laughs> like, and like, of of course the uh infamous brown checkered wave couch the is uh <laughs> which is literally in hundreds of wave features that's located uh in there as well and this is behind the scenes footage uh from the making of a custom movie called Dr. Death uh, was a custom feature that Gary was working on at the time. And so we decided to film him in action. And believe it or not, there, there's actually a lot of ingenuity involved with the creation of some of these wave sets. I can remember being in on a dungeon set and like the walls appear to be like hard stone brick, but when I leaned against it, it was like really soft. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out the bricks were actually small FedEx priority boxes that had been spray painted <laughs> black and then assembled together to make a wall. It's, it's actually pretty ingenious. Oh, man. Say. Uh, I know. Too bad we missed the wave cave. Yeah, that was now, uh, disassembled by yeah, the time we got there. Yeah, uh, Gary had a actual wave studio in Sicklerville, New Jersey, um, but it was abandoned around the time that Sal left, and they sort of divvied up all the props and whatnot. Um, uh, now, the only downside to this backyard studio was that it had like a metal tin roof. Um, you could see it in a few shots here at the beginning, and we, we had a few days of heavy rain, and it made our audio uh, practically... Uh, unusable. Yeah. But yeah, inside Gary's house, uh, yeah, there's like a little uh, doctor, evil, like an evil scientist uh, set, which you'll see later on yeah. uh, when we were interviewing him. And here with Josh in the background there, you can see some of those stone walls. They, they're they actually like really soft, like almost like styrofoam. Oh, man. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, here we have uh, Sal uh, from Psycho Dance. And uh, this is going into our main title sequence. And it was, uh, it was a challenge to assemble because almost every wave feature that you watch has some kind of uh, aesthetically draw-dropping moment in it. <laughs> so to put together essentially like a greatest hits reel, it was like pretty daunting. Yeah. And plus there's over 400 movies in the wave catalog to choose from. And, and I, I think we used about 10% of the catalog. I think we took clips from 40 different features yeah if i count correct that could be yeah yeah i mean we'll try to point some of them out as we go along but um some of them it's just hard to remember but yeah i mean i can remember you know just watching through so many wave tapes and just um constantly calling and texting bill and being like oh my god this has to go in the movie oh my <laughs> god this has to go in the movie uh the song you hear over the titles uh now is known as The Burn. Uh, it's by our composer, Matt Cannon. 
when Bill and I first heard the song, we could just instantly envision our opening titles being set to this. Um, during the time it took us to complete post-production, uh, Matt used the song in his own short film called Hexercise, uh, but was still nice enough to let us reuse it here. And we, we ended up structuring these opening credits almost like a 70s sitcom. Uh, the action sort of freezes <laughs> for each credit. It's it's almost like Three's Company or something. Yeah. So. Oh, good. So the genesis of this project, um, you know, I mean, I've been a longtime fan of Wave, and um, you know, Bill has a history with Wave. So I initially um wanted to write a book about Wave, and uh, it was Bill that convinced me that it would be uh, far better served as a documentary. Um, but yeah, we spent a lot of weekends together just watching wave movies because when we first started hanging out, um, I was really interested not only in Bill's movies, the, the factory 2000 stuff, but knowing that he had worked with wave and I just like, couldn't wait to talk about wave. Yeah. I thought it was really <clears throat> actually pretty odd <laughs> that, that <laughs> you were a fan of wave. Um, you know, because even in the in the micro budget world of of our kind of movies in that time period, Wave was sort of on the outside of all of that, right? You know, um, because they were more fetish oriented and and voyeuristic, kind of you know bizarre little little creatures. Yeah, and and uh, most of the people that bought Wave movies didn't buy them to you know kind of like get into the weird atmosphere of it. They usually bought them because of their proclivity, you know, their fetish, right. Yeah. you know? So when Ross was like, Oh, I've got like 60 wave tapes at home. I was like, are you a fucking weirdo? Like, <laughs> Why do you have that? this like, stuff? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like the normal people don't buy those movies. Right. Right. But then revisiting, uh, the wave catalog, um, around that time, and I started to realize, like, oh wow, this has like a really exciting feel to it now. You know? Yeah. So, and that you know that initial shock that you get from watching a wave film, that trauma—it's yeah. like almost like you get traumatized. You want to recreate that as much as possible, so you keep looking for it, and you do find it over right. and over again in different wave films. Yeah, and I mean, we're in an era now where almost everything has been discovered as far as filmmakers go, and I mean, here's a guy that has his own world and you know 400 features that nobody talks about and i mean whether that's for good reason or bad reason that's for you folks to determine i guess yeah uh, but here's our attempt to quickly sum up the entire shot on video camcorder movie movie movement of the 80s and 90s in about 15 minutes um we assume that most folks that are fans of weave would already be hip to the origins and existence of shot on video movies but we decided to try to give a brief rundown for those people who are coming in blind or maybe have no idea that this type of filmmaking was prevalent and widespread, especially in the video store era. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, if you're looking at like, you know, cinema from the Hollywood Hollywood perspective, you know, you have these big budget films that get, you know, released on video nationwide, you know, yeah. and they're in every single video store. And then you have these at the same time, these little tiny production companies or even just some guy in his backyard with a camcorder making movies and then calling video stores. Right. 
and you could talk to mom and pop video stores as opposed to a blockbuster. Yeah. You know, and you could trick them into buying your movie. Right. Because it kind of looked like all the other product on their shelves, maybe a little worse. And uh, I would always, I, I was a salesperson for um, alternative cinema, basically, EI independent cinema. Yeah. And uh, I would call video stores and sell these tapes to them. And we would make gimmicks like you get a skull that you could put a candle in. Right. You know, or a, a Sandman mug. Right. You know? <laughs> right. And, yeah. and that would help kind of push it along. And some, you know, about 50% of those video stores would keep buying from me. But a lot of them would be like, what did you send me? Right. You know, yeah. like Psycho Sisters. Yeah. What are you talking about? You know? Yeah. In a way, those mom and pop video stores were sort of, it was sort of like the last bastion for film hucksterism. You know, like True. from the drive-in era where True. the playing field was just totally leveled and like a backyard movie like Cannibal Camp Out could just sit next to Carrie. Yep. And it was like totally <laughs> fine. Like no one bats an eye. Yeah. Like that's totally fine there. And so you had a lot of people renting this stuff just totally unbeknownst. Um, like here's D Dave and Laura renting tapes, which is on a set. Um, if, if you look closely uh, at these video store uh, wave set scenes, there's always wave titles propped up on the counter, like like there's somebody's employee pick or something. <laughs> I'm guessing everyone at Wave like pooled their tapes and one sheets together to like build this little video store. I don't I don't know how that was put together, but it's pretty amazing. Now I discovered Wave uh, through a mom and pop video store, basically. Um, in near my hometown in Butler, New Jersey, there was a video warehouse store and they stocked uh, the original Psycho Sisters and I rented it um, and I enjoyed it as, you know, a regionally made, you know, curiosity shot on video. I was a fan of shot on video movies and um, I thought it was cool. And then like a few months later, they had um, Waves Most Gruesome Deaths and they actually had it filed in the like the shockumentary like real death section and i turned the box over and i saw tina Krause and, and pamela such and people that i recognized from uh psycho sisters and i'm like what is this and so i brought it home and i popped it in and it was just like a, a, a two hours of you know stage death sequences with no plot <laughs> yeah. and i'm just like what am i looking at i was i had no idea <laughs> but um as a lover of, you know, these shot on video uh, curiosities, at the end it says mail away for a catalog. And I said, I got to know what this is about, who the guy is behind this, what what is this? And so I mailed away for a Wave catalog, and that's when I learned about Gary and uh, and Wave and, you know, the fact that they were making custom movies. And um, I just, it just interested me, um, and, and I kind of continued on from there. Now, this is the uh, Mad Doctor Laboratory set uh, that we were talking about in the background there. You see Gary has a lot of beakers, and, and that just sits like that all the time, like 24 hours a day. It's just, <laughs> it's just the Mad there. Doctor's Laboratory. <laughs> that doesn't... Uh... This is Clancy McCauley here. Um, Clancy was super important to track down because she was essentially uh, Wave's first actress and just a huge part of the legacy. Uh, she had been out of the business at this point for over 20 years. And uh, a lot of the Wave gang, including Gary, told us not to even bother contacting her because she, she would never agree to, to being interviewed. 
Um, but she ended up being like really gracious and uh, inviting us into her home. And she had a lot of, a lot of cool stories and perspectives. And I also think she's probably the only wave actress featured in the movie who is, is actually out of the business. Like the rest are all still acting. So it was really cool to uh, get her involved with the project. I know uh, at the time, um, you know, Clancy and Gary still lived relatively close to one another, but uh, they hadn't spoken in many, many years. Um, while we were shooting at Gary's, I, I ended up uh, pilfering like a couple hundred dollars worth of uh, wave tapes and memorabilia uh, from Gary. And uh, rather than take money for it, he told us to give all the money to Clancy uh, because he had heard that her mother was ill and she was having a tough time financially. So I think that uh, Clancy was like really touched by the sentiment when we gave her the money. Uh, I urged her to call Gary and reconnect, but I'm not sure that that ever happened. We had like a lot of good fortune when we were making this because everyone was still kind of in the area. A lot of these people have now moved down south and uh, to other parts of the country. So we we uh, we had some pretty good luck overall. Yeah, we weren't too, too far. A um, couple hour drive <laughs> for, for the interviews, but not too far apart. And uh, here's Avon Warren. Um, Avon doesn't really act and stuff anymore, but he is still interested in effects. And uh, he did a lot of work in haunted house attractions after Wave, and I, I think he may have even owned one at the time. Um, but I guess, I, like, how did you discover Wave? Oh, um, so <clears throat> I wasn't really all that familiar with shot on video films. Uh, the only encounter I'd ever had prior to working for uh, Pop Cinema or uh, alternative cinema and EI cinema was, um, I rented the Ripper. Right. Because Tom Savini was in it. And, and, uh, I was, uh, shocked <laughs> at the quality of the film. Oh yeah. You know? And, um, but, uh, I, uh, basically what happened was a, a, a friend of mine, Inger Laurie, who was in a band called the nymphs. Right. Um, she had called me one day and said, Hey, you know, there's this ad in East coast rocker saying they're looking for music for a horror film. And you should submit your music because you love horror films. So um, she gave me the address, and it was Pete Jackalone. Oh. And it was for Psycho Sisters 95. Mm -hmm. And I sent him a disco missile tape. And um, it was, I believe, a disco missile anniversary recording where we just like took blue mescaline and recorded song after song after improv song. <laughs> so it's like really noisy right. with like drum machine. Yeah. And at first Pete was like, oh, this is, I don't know what this is, you know, but we started talking about movies and we got along really well. So he revisited the tape and he ended up using two songs, uh, Decide and The Love Song. And um, when Psycho Sisters premiered, I guess, at Chiller, he invited me to come down to Chiller. So I met Gary right. and uh, he was a man of little words, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I was overwhelmed by how intense chiller was. And I was really depressed that I only had $20 in my pocket, Yeah, you know, and I'm sure I spent it on like magazines or, or whatever. And I found there, um, uh, but then I was in the, the wave universe all of a sudden, right. you know, and, uh, I went to the premiere of psycho sisters at the college, uh, William Patterson college. 
and Gary was there taping it and um, got interviewed for Splatter Chatter, apparently. I didn't even know that they used that. Like, no one told me. Yeah, we found that while we were doing the movie. I called Bill, and I'm like, I have a tape here of you being interviewed (laughs) at the Sega Sisters premiere. And you're like, wait, wait, that happened? Yeah, Yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, I had a shaved head because I was hanging out with the Hare Krishnas. Yes. (laughs) So it's so crazy. And then um, I lost my job. I was a telemarketer. I lost my job. And... uh, Pete was like, oh, uh, uh, Mike Rosso is actually looking for a sales guy. So I called him up and I went to work for, it was $25 a day and a Stromboli. Mm. I got a nice Stromboli lunch and he had a good Javalia coffee. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started telemarketing, selling uh, Wave and um, Jared Bookwalter movies. Yeah, probably Ghoul School. Ghoul School. Yeah. Uh, what else was I... Uh, like the zombie army, all that the yeah. stuff. Goblin. Goblin, yeah. yes. All that stuff. I was selling all that stuff to video stores. And what I would do is uh, we would Mike would make a like a one-sheet sales sheet, and then I would go home with the mailing list and actually pack it all up and mail it and then wait two weeks, and then I would call all the video stores and do that wave. Right. You know? But, uh Yeah. So that's how I, and then uh, Mike uh, started giving me movies. I'm like, I want to see some of the stuff that we're selling or whatever. So he gave me Dead in the Pool. Oh, that was by the, Wave. Yeah. That was my first Wave. Yeah. And I was uh, shocked at how bizarre it was because, yeah. you know, it has like a 10 minute scene of a girl skimming a pool. It doesn't yeah. really make any sense that right. that would be a movie, yeah. you know? And then it's like girls getting drowned over and over again and, you know. Right. And I watched a couple other things. I, I'm sure I got uh, Most Gruesome Deaths at Home at one point. Um, trying to think of what other... I saw a bunch of like things with girls getting strangled. And eventually I was just like, I can make movies then. This is right. too easy. Yeah. You know? So uh, I went and made Crest of the Vampire 2, Teenage Girl Ghoul Go-Go. And thus started my <laughs> career making movies. career, yeah. Yeah. Now, we just saw some clips uh, from Sisters, uh, first from 87, which was the first wave feature ever. It's uh, a a cool little shot on video thriller, I think has probably gotten a bit overshadowed in the landslide of wave's more bizarre um, custom features. It's certainly worth tracking down, if for nothing else, its historical value in the uh, you know, the overall echelon of American shot on video features. Uh, Gary eventually re-edited parts of it into another feature called the Valley Strangler, uh, if you can track that down. Yeah, that's one thing that we've noticed throughout uh, looking at the, the Wave catalog is that Gary tinkers yeah. with his movies and, and alters the covers a lot and sometimes re-edits them. Yeah. So you can find many versions out there. If you're a collector, it, it can become daunting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can find the same tape four times with different artwork and stuff, and it's it's really bizarre for this level of cinema. Uh, so here's Terry Lewandowski and Christine Cavalier. Uh, as we mentioned in the movie, Terry, uh, the blonde, is actually Christine's mom. Uh, there's a wave movie called Twisted Teens where Terry actually plays Christine's mom, um, and I think that was Christine's initial entrance into wave as Terry was there before. And we just, I mean, we just thought it was so bizarre that a mother and daughter would become a Scream Queen duo and then, like, appeared nude together. Um, <laughs> and, th- and apparently on a date together in that one photo. Yeah, <laughs> like sharing a sundae or a milkshake. But they actually, 
had a pretty decent run outside of Wave as well. Uh, they were featured heavily in John Russo's uh, Scream Queens Illustrated magazine. And uh, Russo, who wrote the original Night of the Living Dead, even licensed Wave movies from Gary and like released them on VHS through right. New Market Productions. So there's like these alternate Wave tapes with just real generic covers on them, and they're all Terry and Christine movies. Um, they were spokesmodels for the Spooky World Horror Theme Park. Um, and both of them appear in John Russo's Christmas slasher film, Santa Claus. Uh, Christine in particular is, uh, featured in Red Lips, Love is a Stranger, and, uh, on the Scream Queen's Naked Christmas tape. Uh, unfortunately, we were unable to track them down. Uh, both have been out of the business for probably 20 years or more. I heard that Christine was an exotic dancer for many years, uh, before settling down and starting a family. I was able to find her mailing address, and I, I wrote her a letter to try and connect, but she uh, she never replied. It's probably not surprising. And here we're on to Dead North, um, which seems to have gotten out there a little more than most of the other wave features, probably because it's just sort of a straight slasher uh, in the Friday the 13th vein. Um, it's one that you'll see reviewed in fanzines and stuff here and there. Um, seems to have got out a little bit here. And uh, apparently played on cable TV at some point uh, on some cable station. Uh, Gary uh, says that he spoke to one human being that watched it on cable. So that's... <laughs> what an experience that must have been. Yeah, yeah. But um, gives you a little bit of the insight of... You know, for for someone like me that grew up watching cable access and watching MTV, and I was never, it's probably different for Bill, um, but I was never bothered by shot on video. I just instantly accepted it as a format because I, I guess I grew up watching stuff that was shot on video on, on cable and, you know, on MTV and stuff. So I just, I took to it right away, like when I saw video violence and, um, Cannibal Camp Out and, and Death Row Diner and Red Deck Zombie, some of those, the ones that I saw early on. Um, I just, I kind of took to it right away. And here's the Wave Custom commercial. Uh, that is actress Carol Livingston. Um, she was featured in a lot of the early Wave features. Um, and of course, Sal's in a magician outfit for some reason. I'm not <laughs> it's really kind of sure. hard to unpack that whole thing. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot there. And you may notice that it says In Dire Straits Productions as the name of the company in the commercial. And um, I know a lot of Wave enthusiasts, myself included, have been confused by the difference between the two companies. There's the Wave couch again. Uh, In Dire Straits Productions and Wave Productions. And uh, what we found out basically is that essentially In Dire Straits was created as the imprint for the custom features that were conceived and funded by outsiders. Whereas Wave would remain the imprint for Gary's, you know, homegrown passion projects. And and there was a difference, you know, uh, Dead North, Hung Jury, Fatal Delusions, um, Sisters, those were scripted in-house by either Gary or Sal. Um, whereas the vast majority of the catalog were customs. Um, eventually, I think the divisions between the two imprints were just kind of cast yeah, aside. Yeah, it all just... And they just sort of applied it. like titles randomly. It's sort of like the difference between Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies. Like it just sort of got thrown to the wind eventually. So, 
So our uh, our cinematographer for the majority of this uh, feature was Brian Darwis. Um, he directed a feature recently called uh, Get My Gun. And you had worked with Brian before, right? Um, let's see. Did I? I can't think of anything. Did I? What, what am I missing? I don't know. Wasn't it uh, Late Fee or one of those? Didn't oh, you guys work on that? Oh, yeah. That's right. Jeez. I, I, that ages ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, uh, Brian had shot Late Fee, where I played a werewolf and I urinated into popcorn. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, essentially, we asked every interviewee to name as many of the death fetishes that were prevalent in the wave canon as they could. Um, and so we could edit, the uh, you know, a montage together eventually, but... Um, you know, some of them, believe it or not, had a hard time thinking of anything. It's like they'd name two and then be like, oh, I can't think of any more. I'm like, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, you lived it. I don't, you yeah. know. Yeah, exactly. No, it's it's pretty crazy. I mean, even just to think that the cast of these films didn't really process the fetish aspect of it yeah. for so long, yeah. you know? Um, was bizarre to me. Yeah, it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, well, we're just making horror movies. But, like, obviously there's way more to it than that, you know what I mean? So um, it was interesting to see who grasped it and who didn't. Yeah. Um, I mean, even, the, you know, I mean, Gary understood it, but he just, the way he looks at it is so innocently. Right. You know? And, and you know, when Debbie D was like, Oh, not for like ten years did I realize that this was fetish, and I was like, "You're a fashion model too, like, don't you?" Right. You know, like, yeah. I yeah. Just, it just was really hard for me to understand because, you know, coming into like viewing all the wave stuff, I didn't know right away, but once I started working with Gary and doing, you know, the custom movies, mm -hmm. and we did the Cannibal movies first. Yeah, Cannibal Supper and Dinner for Two. Right? Yeah. yeah, and uh, and it was like you know the whole movie was just about the the measuring and preparing a girl to be eaten right and there's no real it's like sexual fondling right and and you know just like voyeuristic like staring at a girl with fruit on her yeah the preparation the preparation yeah. like oiling her up and all this stuff yeah and it's you know 80 minutes of this right yeah, almost so, like uh, Art says later, it's like the pre-rape struggle. Right. Without the a rape, without a rape. Yeah. This, it's just like the, yeah. You know, this is clearly just like a sexual fetish. Right. There's nothing more to it. There's no, there's no thickness to this plot, to right, this plot right. or anything. It was all improv. Yeah. You know, and, and it also really didn't matter if we did well. Right. It just... Yeah, had just to be get finished it done, in right. six hours. Yeah. You know? And and it, as long as it had the general idea that the customer wanted, you were good. You're good, yeah. So for these girls not to really understand what that was just seems so crazy to me. You yeah. Know? Now this scene here with Dina getting uh smashed with a pie in the face. It's from a feature called Trivial Pie Suit. Uh, we actually got the tape during our travels of filming the initial interviews, and it, it's really bizarre. It's like Pam hosting a game show in the middle of the woods in lingerie, <laughs> and she's, she's asking Dana and Dawn Murphy a series of trivia questions, 
and then she smashes them in the face with pies when they answer incorrectly. It's one of the customs where you could just see that the girls are really miserable. <laughs> and it's one of those I just remember watching and then just like calling Bill and being like, I, I don't even know how to describe to you what I just watched. Like, And that's sort of part of the allure, I think, for lovers um, of brain damage cinema that attract them to wave. It's just sort of the, the potential for the jaw-dropping uh, discovery. Yeah, so I think, you know, what the term now is called anti-cinema. Right. And it's cinema that's so illogical that you just can't believe someone actually thought it was okay to make. Right. Right. You know, and and that is one of the allures to to wave is that, you know, if you really focus and pay attention to the dialogue and the and 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 the way it's shot and and everything, you're going to you know, not just be like, "Oh, this is a weird low budget shot on video thing." Right. You, you're going to be like, there's no real logic to what's going on here. Like, it's kind of like if a 12 year old directed a movie about a police procedural, right. but didn't know anything about policing, right. just made it up like, oh, well, if you're looking for a killer, you take your gun out and you run around the woods in a miniskirt. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. No detective ever has done that ever. Right. For real. So it, it, it's it's that kind of 12 year old logic. Yeah. And, and somehow it's a grown <laughs> Right, and that, and that, there's, it's never tongue in cheek. No, it's always, it's, it's always played as straight as can be. Um, so that, that's also odd. And uh, speaking of police procedural, <laughs> this is uh, Sal Longo. Um, we actually searched for Sal throughout the entire length of this production. Um, Sal, of course, was an integral part of Wave and uh, was a one-time partner and co-owner. Uh, he left due to personal, mostly marital, some financial disagreements. Uh, Gary and Sal had not spoken for decades. Uh, our initial idea was to find Sal and film him reuniting with Gary. Uh, we did eventually track Sal down. He had moved from Jersey to Las Vegas, and Bill actually got him on the phone, um, which I don't know if you want to tell that story or not. But uh, yeah. yeah, I called him, and I, I asked him if he remembered who I was because um, I had met him at the... Uh, this, the screening of Psycho Sisters and right. probably again at Chiller <clears throat> and uh, told him that we were making a documentary and he very, you know, deadpan. Yeah. Just said, no, I'm not interested. That's a part of my life that I left behind. And I was like, the, the fans, like, yeah, you know, like I really tried to, yeah, to, to sell it, it. Yeah. And, and tell him that, you know, it was like a serious documentary we were making about these films. And that Gary was still making them. And he just said, no, nah, really, I, I have just no interest yeah. in being involved. So. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame. But he's included here because he is an important part. And uh, we actually found it really funny to learn that he was employed in law enforcement, uh, considering the haphazard police procedure that uh, <laughs> is <laughs> featured in so many of these features that Bill was just talking about. And the you know skimpy police outfits. Um, but... We just saw uh, Howard Simon, who uh, acts under the alias Luke Marlowe in the way of features. Um, Howard has also appeared in some of Demi D's New Faces productions and has uh, been a producer on a few indie films, uh, All Saints Day and the Gilgo Beach Murders. And uh, now we're on to Dave Casiglione. Um, we should mention that uh, an interesting uh, similarity amongst the many Wave veterans is that they eventually 
um, started their own companies and offshoots and uh, began directing their own films, which we're going to talk about a little bit on the commentary because we didn't really have enough time to include it all in the film. But it's very interesting that almost all of these people that worked with Gary eventually started making their own movies, which is kind of cool. Um, in the case of Laura, Pam, Debbie, um, they continued directing custom films, sometimes in collaboration with Gary and sometimes on their own. But Dave uh, is probably the most prolific of the bunch. Uh, Dave's company uh, is called Sharky Video, and he's directed a number of interesting and notable shot-on-video features, including Love is a Stranger, Backwoods Marcy, Deep Undead, and, and X-Hooker's Christmas Carol. Uh, many of which feature a cavalcade of familiar faces from Wave, including Gary, uh, in various acting roles. Uh, if you're an enthusiast of, of video features, I would definitely recommend tracking down and checking out some of Dave's uh, sharky output. Uh, Dave told us a, a funny story, too, that um, he went for a job interview one time. We, we actually <laughs> ended up editing this out, but that he, he went for a job interview for some kind of computer job or something. And the woman was like, I know you from somewhere. <laughs> he's like, no, I don't think so. And she's like, yeah, from a movie, I think. And he's like, my brain just went crazy because I'm thinking, <laughs> how did this woman see me in a movie? And it turns out it was Psycho Sisters, uh, Pete's uh, initial version of Psycho Sisters that somehow she had either rented or seen somewhere. And she actually recognized Dave from Psycho Sisters. That's so. crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, Psycho Sisters was in, I would say... 300 video stores yeah you know like that was you know the the in one of the initial waves of video sales that that we did at um alternative cinema and before i was even there i think jeff was starting to sell them to video stores and then i came in uh mike generated a list and uh you know, I created a, I had about, mm, I would say I had about 250 video stores that I would regularly call right uh, on my list. And um, Psycho Sisters, for some reason, was was an easy sell because it was early on before they caught on to what you were actually doing. Right, right. Yeah, so we, we did get a lot of Psycho Sisters into the stores. And we just, uh, we just saw Pam, uh, Pamela Such. Pam was also a singer before becoming an actress, like Debbie. Um, she got her start with wave, um, but would eventually become a notable actress in micro budget horror films. Um, she's worked with a diverse slate of, uh, indie directors, including Ryan Cavaline, uh, Len Kabasinski, Mark Polonia, and even the late great Ted V. Michaels. Uh, Pam branched out into producing and directing. As we mentioned, she has a company called Siren Tales and she's, uh, helmed a handful of cult features, including Tracked. Uh, the Gosh Darn Mortgage, Project Gamma Ray, and a personal favorite of Bill and Mine's uh, Catastrophe. It's a feature whose cast is comprised solely of Pam's pet kitty cats, which she voices over. It's, um, it's amazing. Yeah. It really is good. I actually got to work with Pam and uh, uh, Stephen Steele, who's also a wave actor. And uh, uh, yeah, Pam played the, all the mother characters in the movie Duck, the Carbine High Massacre. Right. And Pam actually appeared with us at Alamo Draft House in New York a few years back. Um, we did a Q&A following the screening of a Wave compilation that was programmed uh, for their Video Vortex series called Wave's Greatest Hits. And then uh, we just saw Dana Demko as the Black Ghost. Um, 
Uh, we love that Dina is sort of the last holdover from Wave's Golden Age that still appears and vends annually at Chiller Theater shows. So if you're a Wave fan and you want to have Dina sign all your tapes, uh, just swing by a Chiller show and say hello. Uh, Dina continues to act and appear in Indie Horror Fair as well, uh, most notably in Carl Petrie's Ironbound Vampire and Ghost of Angela Webb. Um, she's appeared in features by Terry West, John Riccio, Manny Serrano, Jeff Kirkendale, and uh, in Tom Ryan's Faces, which I highly recommend. Uh, she had a New York Cable Access show, which was produced by Carl Petrie, that featured um, Johnny Link. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and now we're on to Laura um, here. Uh, we filmed this in Laura's living room at her former home, and we really dug that the entire place had this whole underwater nautical theme, considering Laura's affinity for mermaids and mermaid custom films. Uh, Lauren, Laura was the first person we interviewed for the movie. Um, she was a great interview, a good sport. We interviewed her for like over an hour and a half and, uh, made her unplug her refrigerator, uh, <laughs> because the, the noise was getting picked up in Brian's mics. Uh, outside of wave, Laura has appeared in features by Joe Sherlock, Luke, B uh, Luke Bernier. Um, she's produced and directed custom features and, and her own features through her company, which is called Mermaid Dreams. Um, some of her directorial uh, features include Cold of Soul, Never Ending Lie, and uh, she has a trilogy called Call of the Sea Trilogy. It's like a mermaid trilogy. So, And it's interesting that like Laura, Tina, and Debbie all still appear regularly in Gary's most recent wave productions. So, Yeah, um, it's bizarre. It's, yeah. it's so crazy, right? Yeah. It's like 20, 25 years of wave movies, 30 years of wave movies. Like how long have they been doing it? Since 94? Right. Yeah, 94, all three of them came. It's kind of like when the majority of the cast that we love, the, the cast of players that we love right around 94 um, is when everything started gelling. And then, you know, from what Gary says, the sales started picking up and stuff. And and that was an interesting time in the, in the overall shot on video scene. I mean, that's when... Um, sort of like a second wave kind of came in uh, movies like ozone shattered dead um, you know, more innovative type stuff. So the scene was really popping off at that time. And here's uh, Debbie D performing on the Joe Franklin show. Um, now these backup dancers are the real stars. <laughs> so just, so just take a moment and watch them go. <laughs> Debbie D obviously uh, started as a singer and a regional pop star. This song is called I Want You In My Life, and it was released on both a 12-inch and a single back in the day. So happy hunting on Discogs for those. Uh, you can see Debbie sing this uh, song, an updated rock version of this song, uh, in another movie uh, from 2006 called Requiem for a Vampire, if you want to track that down. Oh, my God. I, I forgot that was on there. Yeah. I have that at home. Uh, I think it, one of the first things that Bill and I discussed when we were talking about making a documentary was Wave was that at some point the movie just had to stop and this video just had to play <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, I mean, we ended up editing it down cause we were being a little, uh, self-indulgent, self-indulgent. We just wanted it to play from start <laughs> to finish. And then we realized that it may be too abrupt and just go on too long, but it's really great. Um, yeah, Debbie is really wonderful. She's a, a very warm, uh, friendly, open person. Yeah, her, her interview was great. Yeah, and she's always willing to help out. 
come and promote stuff. Uh, she's come to different appearances for me. Um, you know, different screenings we've done and stuff. And, um, as you see here, she got her acting start with director Phil Herman. Uh, his New York based company was called Falcon video. And he was the one that discovered, uh, Debbie as an actress. Um, and she was in burglar from hell. Jacker 1 and 2, and Tales to the End, um, which were all Falcon video productions. Um, aside from her bewildering, uh, bewildering filmography with Wave, Debbie has appeared in um, dozens of micro-budget films, uh, and along with Tina, is probably like the most prolific uh, and pr probably boundary-pushing custom video actress ever, I would say, probably. I, I don't think there's anyone who's done more custom stuff uh, than probably Debbie and Tina. They've worked for every custom company that exists, probably. Yeah. Um, Debbie also uh, started her own production company uh, with her longtime friend, Bill Arthur. Uh, they created countless custom videos, um, including the Dear John Letters series and the Arthur Shooting Pain series. And she continues to appear in, in person and in films as the character Destiny the Vampire Mermaid, uh, which has its own wave movie. Uh, it's a character that was created by a comic artist named Ron Foss, and it was at one time featured monthly in Scary Monsters magazine. And uh, on to Tina Krause. Um, I would assume that anyone who's watched a shot on video movie in the 90s uh, probably needs no introduction to Tina Krause. Uh, the funny part of the story of them discovering Tina at Chiller, I'm not sure that it fully translates in the film. Um, but essentially that Gary and Sal met Tina at Chiller when she was just a patron. She was just there like shopping, um, buying stuff and they convinced her to be in a movie and they didn't like schedule like, okay, we're going to shoot on this day. They literally walked outside of the hotel <laughs> typical wave, yeah. and strangled her on video outside <laughs> of the convention. Like it, if you see the clip here, you'll see the hotel yep. in the background. So they just like went like the into crown, the courtyard at the crown plaza, at the crown plaza. Here it is. <laughs> and, uh, and then they strangled her there and then they brought her back inside and they put the tape in the VCR and like played it on the TV screen was like, look, you're a star. Yeah. Immediately. Right. Yeah. It's just instant stardom. Yeah. I mean, it's just a totally mind boggling situation. And, uh, and of course the footage is not wasted. It is in a wave movie. I believe fatal delusions has that scene in it. Chiller, uh, Chiller was, was, uh, uh, ripe for the spontaneity of, um, you know, creating immediate scream Queens. Right. So like Wave would go to a convention and have a, a shoot set up. And if it fell through, they would just go and ask somebody Yeah. to be in it. Yeah. You want to um, be an actress? Draculina yeah. magazine yep. would be roaming around mm -hmm. and plucking up actresses from these little shot and video right. movies. And then in a couple of months, you'd be on the cover of Draculina magazine or in the magazine. Right. Right. As well as Scream Queens Illustrated. Right. And it, it basically got to a point by the time we got to the 2000s where there's just like scantily glad girls like just screaming and, and you know, being real obnoxious. And you would walk up and like, oh, okay, well, what movie are you in? Oh, I'm not in a movie. Okay, you're just a scream <laughs> queen. It's just, you know, you have no credits. And I think that sort of devalued, you know, uh, what these other girls and people like Debbie Rashawn and, you know, people that were prolific in this era during the 90s, what they did and accomplished. True. Um, now Tina, of course, has worked with the who's who of some of the most 
prolific shot on video auteurs throughout the 90s and beyond, uh, including J.R. Bookwalter, Scooter McRae, Ron Bonk, Donald Farmer, Zach Snig, Andrea Schnoss, and, of course, Mr. William Hellfire. Yep, and she also got to work with Frank Henlauer. I was about to say That's that, yeah. She did some uh, more mainstream appearances. Uh, she was in Frank's Bad Biology. She was in the movie Animal Room, which starred Matthew Lilliard, and probably most shockingly, the 1998 feature Montana, which starred Stanley Tucci and Academy Award winner Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. And uh, she directed her own surreal shot on video feature in 1999, which is called Limbo, um, which is now uh, out and available. Uh, for everyone to check out. Do you have any uh, funny recollections of, of working with Tina over the years? I know you guys collaborated a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, well, let's see. I know that you mummified her in um, duct tape for a movie. Yeah, so um, one of the custom... Gary was giving me custom work, and uh, I was with uh, Misty Monday at the time, and we went to Tina's... Uh, Tina was living in a warehouse in jersey city mm -hmm. and it was like illegal to rent rooms there but there was a bunch of artists living in this warehouse and uh so we would go to shoot there and um the first duct tape movie i think it was the duct tape killer uh basically was just me and tina and aaron was shooting it for me right and i had to duct tape her various times and she would like wake up from a nightmare and then get duct taped again and that was really the entirety of the movie right so what i did was i tried to powder the duct tape so that i didn't hurt her right you know i didn't know what else to do right so i would powder a bunch of duct tape and then roll it back up and then pretend to unroll it and you could see the powder coming off it was ridiculous <laughs> right and i had to basically like duct tape her i think in like a hog tide right and she was laying on her face with her butt in the air naked mm -hmm. and i i'm sure she was asleep <laughs> She totally fell asleep. Right. It was like it's just another day at the office. Just another day at the office. Right. Like right. it was just like because it's so it was so boring. Yeah. You know, really, it was just like like a, almost like shooting an industrial. You know? Yeah. It was just yeah. so boring. Um, I went to Paris with Tina for Donald Farmer's um, erotic vampire in Paris. Right. And uh, the first night we got there, um, we didn't have to work, so we all went to a nightclub. And went dancing, and uh, I was harassing the DJ to play Can, and he was like, I have all those records at home, but no one listens to them. <laughs> um, and I think Tina actually slept with Aaron and I one night just because she didn't want to be alone in her room. Right. Um, yeah, let's see what else. Um, Tina invited me to play at her warehouse. Her boyfriend at the time was like setting up rock and roll shows. So I played two shows there. Uh, her dogs urinated all over my delay pedal. Okay. Yeah, so that, I remember that. Um, and uh, most notably, though, I think is, uh, you know, I, I, I would always, she would always joke, even in the movie she jokes about it, I would always call her up and be like, see, I didn't know that Tina was just down for anything. Right. And, and I would be like, um, hey, Tina, like, I have this role for you, but you have to get, like, butt raped by a broomstick and then scream about splinters. Is that okay? And she's like, yeah, that's fine. You know, and then another time, Gary got a custom that he refused to do. Yeah. Probably because he loves Tina so much, he probably thought it was vile because this guy just wanted to have Tina Krause eventually shot in the vagina with a revolver. Right. 
And so he refused to do it, but he knew that I would do it. So he called me and Pete and I did it. And we cast Tina's breasts and, and vagina. So we had a bust of her. I don't know where it is. We, it might be in Pete's attic or something. Right, because the money was probably enough to warrant that. Yeah, yeah. That it was like, I think the guy paid us t- like $1,200 for the day. So we, we cast her and then um, we did the shoot. And she, poor Tina was like basically naked and in the chair being harassed for yeah. eight hours. It was primarily um, improv, and it, and it came off pretty well. Uh, the singer from Disco Missile actually played the the killer. Right. And, um, yeah, and it ended up in the movie uh, Your Eyes Are Bleeding. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, she was a trooper, man. You yeah. Know? She really is. And we just saw another uh, meta scene from the photo murders. The photo murders is a wave movie that we used a lot of clips from because it's a movie where Gary plays a director who is hired to make custom murder scenes, but in the movie he's actually murdering the girls unbeknownst to his producer. So there's a lot of scenes where Gary's operating the camera and yelling action and talking about murder scenes. And so we used a lot of stuff from the photo murders, which was cool. What's, uh, what's really great about uh, the fact that Wave has 400 movies, um, you could almost illustrate any kind of scenario right. using scenes from a Wave movie. Yep. So we were very lucky to just have so much B-roll to choose from. Right. You know. Yeah. I mean, um, most documentaries that you know profile a filmmaker, they usually rely on collaborators or critics to sort of further the narrative as the as the story throughout. And I mean, that was a challenge for us because um, these movies were rarely written about or reviewed uh, by any critics. Um, so we were, we were lucky to find people like Mike Gingold and our Enger um, and some of the few other journalists who were familiar with this stuff and were willing to sit down and, and chat about it. Um, now we just saw Gary's uh, damsel in distress newsletter. Um, and those are my actual copies as I was actually on the mailing list for these <laughs> in the late 90s, uh, I can remember working at a record store called The Wall in 97 or 98 um, and actually bringing um, the damsels in distress with me and leafing through them on my break. I just I have that ingrained in my mind. <laughs> um, and as a lover of demented cinema, I always enjoyed the sort of, uh, I guess, dress up and play pretend, um, even like the community theater aspect of, of the wave features. I generally liked these people and I got a, I just got a kick out of watching them react and interact in bizarre situations that were put upon them by financiers. Like I would never order strangled part three because I had no desire or titillation in seeing women get strangled for 70 minutes. So I would usually read the descriptions and I would look for the ones that had the most intricate and convoluted plot descriptions. <laughs> so something like Deadly Sale, where there's like a real estate deal and like a rogue hermit who refuses to vacate the <laughs> land or like time travelers where there's, I mean, not only time travel, but like Indians and and, a, and squabs and <laughs> Tina's in a Victorian gown and Gary's in a safari outfit. Like those are the ones that I would did go to the to the post office and get a money order and, you know, essentially mail it to Gary to get the tapes. So, um, and then, you know, uh, you also had the magazines going on at the same time where you could order this stuff, which is kind of what we're touching on here. And the, and the magazines were really 
a huge part of the whole like micro budget scene. Uh, I'm glad we were able to touch on it a bit here. Um, JR's alternative cinema, Hughes Draculina, uh, along with you know independent video, psychotronic, film threat video guide. Um, they were like Bibles for me at the time, uh, especially from like 94 on when this whole uh, wave of shot on video stuff was really exploding. I, there was so much to discover then, and I think all those magazines should really be archived or collected into books because there's so much mind-blowing micro-budget stuff that's just mentioned or reviewed once, and then you've never seen it again. So I think it's uh, it's funny, too, how so many of the tapes that we used in the documentary are signed by the actresses. Uh, as we move into the chiller segment here, you'll see how that fan interaction was such a crucial part, I think, to the wave success. The fans not only wanted to buy the tapes, but they also wanted to have them signed by the actress, uh, take home a corresponding Polaroid or still. And I think the vast percentage of the wave tapes that I've found in the wild over the years are signed by one or several of the actresses. Uh, we have a montage here of vintage chiller footage. Uh, this is from uh, 1992 and 1993 shows. Uh, this footage is all from the Meadowland Showcase, uh, which was a local New Jersey cable show that was created uh, by our friend Mike Rosso. And you'll see some familiar faces here. Uh, Michael Berryman hanging out with Terry and Christine. Uh, John Fidelli, J.R. Bookwalter. Uh, the genuine nerd Toby uh, Radloff uh, from the Killer Nerd movies. Uh, John Russo. Um, and this is Debbie D and Debbie Dutch, who at one time billed themselves as the Double Ds. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's, uh, it's kind of funny. You, you know, you're looking at all right, this is a horror convention. Right. But it really does have an element of sort of sleaziness to it. Yeah. Which, which was really exciting. And, you know, when I was selling tapes there, you know, I always kind of felt like I was selling more sexual content than than say some of the other companies were right at the time before it all blew up and everybody was doing it yeah um but it was sort of like a trick like you would put the rap on and you call it you know infamous bondage murders or whatever and you know it was still just this sleazy stuff you know yeah. or like you know some vehicle for two girls to make out in, you right. Know? right and the guys would line up sure yeah. for, for these actresses that you would only ever see at one of the chiller cons or something very close, regionally close by, you know, sometimes, yeah. you know, we would all travel down to like Maryland or something. Fantastic. Yeah. We saw Ron Bonk, uh, who undoubtedly had the most jaw dropping selection of shot on videotapes for sale in the chiller days. It, it, table was just enormous. And the boxes of tapes were like double stack. It was just like a total smorgasbord, uh, for enthusiasts of this stuff. Um, I think Chiller was really essential for wave and shot on filmmakers in general, especially here on the East Coast. Uh, I, I know uh, Mike equates it to like the micro budget can, mm -hmm. but like it really was. I mean, everyone was there promoting their work and interacting and collaborating and, uh, you know, forming connections. And that entire element is just totally absent and gone now. I mean, Chiller and conventions in general are bigger than ever, but you can literally count the amount of indie filmmakers that are promoting their work on one hand. Uh, for some reason, it's just like not an outlet that filmmakers deem fruitful anymore, uh, which is a little perplexing to me. Uh, we have uh, eaten alive a tasteful revenge here. Uh, as bizarre as the images on the screen are, uh, the denouement of this feature 
is uh, a wave actress named D- uh, Barbara Joyce, who actually sliding around in Debbie's digestive tract. Uh, and the thought of Gary having to like paint a child slide red and then like construct a set with a fluffy stomach, uh, and like firing out streams of digestive liquids just so Barbara could slide down. It's, it's just really mind boggling. Uh, unfortunately we had to cut it back for time, but it's worth seeking out, uh, if you're an adventurous viewer. And it's, uh, an extra on limbo. That's right. Yeah. So if you, if you get the, uh, Agfa limbo Blu-ray. Uh, you will be able to see. Yeah, you can watch Eaten Alive, A Tasteful Revenge. Um, and then, you know, we're kind of going through the vastness of the Wave Library, and this was also um, part of the, our major challenge is, you know, as you said in the movie, you know, any other filmmaker that you're chronicling, you're talking about 10, 15 features. Um but with Gary, it's like 400. So, I mean, we went through so many tapes and so many movies to find footage. And we could still be doing it, probably. Yeah. <laughs> we could still be going through trying to find stuff. There's just so much to go through. Exactly. And everything you pop in is just has some moment where you're like, well, that has to go in the movie, <laughs> you know? So it was just sort of, sort of never ending. Uh, this here is uh, Hugh Gallagher on screen. And uh, he. Uh, was the creator of Draculina magazine and Draculina was cool. It was, it was unlike the other indie magazines at the time. Like in addition to articles and reviews of shot on video movies, it also had like playboy style nude pictorials of various indie scream queens. So they would be interviewed and then like it would have a centerfold and it's very, very strange. And you know, this was sold in like Barnes and Noble and borders. Like, yeah, it's very bizarre. This is uh, footage from Hung Jury, which I really, really love here, this scene where this woman is being uh, beaten with a you know, decapitated arm. Um, I sure if you like still frame this right here, it would look like it like came from the collection of a serial killer. It's <laughs> yeah. like a, a body being pushed in like a wheelbarrow. It's just absolutely mortifying. <laughs> Yeah, we tried to find uh, as many examples as we could of of people botching their lines, which is a common occurrence in wave movies. It's it's just a, a really strange occurrence that you know Gary wouldn't go back. But uh, Gary is is known for being a one take wonder. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, know, uh, you you had to just get it done and move on. Right, right. Even though the tape was free, and and uh, I had to have this James Way scene uh, from Psycho <laughs> Vampire. Somewhere in this movie, uh, I can remember spending many, many hours in James Way as a kid. I purchased a lot of videos there, a lot of heavy metal cassettes in my childhood days. So when we, we found this clip of uh, Terry walking out of, uh, of James Way, we knew that it, it just had to go in somewhere. And this is more uh, footage of Christine Cavalier and uh, I'm afraid some unknown... Uh, starlet here i'm not sure uh who this is but uh it's a nice awkward interaction with like a bee or something yeah it's like a bee came into frame and the girls are really really freaked out but gary's just like it's it's fine it's fine <laughs> like, we'll get through it <laughs> oh it's too much it's yeah it's really really perplexing so um i also spent a day uh on in a wave movie um <laughs> As we were uh, making this production, um, 
I was in between jobs and uh, Gary contacted me one day and it's like, do you want to help me make my movie? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I drove down to the wave uh, headquarters and I was expecting to like hold a light, you know, <laughs> like uh, I'm going to hold the boom mic or something. And so I get in there and he's like, all right, put these sunglasses on and then like throw Tina over your shoulder and carry her <laughs> over there. And so I also spent a day um, harassing Tina, harassing Tina Krause. I duct taped her, <laughs> um, and she's a pro, man. As you said, like she's like, okay, so you take the duct tape, and you take the sticky side, you put it on your shirt, and peel it off a bunch of times, and then that'll make it so that it's not sticky and it doesn't hurt me. I'm like okay, and uh, Gary had a, l- a lot of fun that day ribbing me because I didn't know how to tie up girls. Oh like, yeah, what's wrong with you? You don't know how to make a knot. I'm like, I've <laughs> never like, tied up a girl, Gary. I don't, you know, it's totally foreign to me. I don't. It's not my thing. But, That's too much. Yeah, I uh, wasn't in the military. I wasn't in the navy, and I don't tie up girls. You're not a rapist, All right? Yeah, <laughs> you just play one on TV. Yeah. So uh, here's some uh, Psycho Sisters promo footage, um, which was. Uh, shot at Chiller. I'm not sure what year, but I'm pretty uh, sure that this was the one that I was invited to. Okay, you see Gary yeah. is in the background yeah. there, which is fun. Um, but uh, this is uh Christine Taylor, who was the other Psycho Sister. She only appeared in like a handful of Wade features. Uh, Codename Doll Squad is the other one that comes to mind. Uh, she still lives in New Jersey, but doesn't really seem to want to be associated with this stuff. Uh, in the background here, of Pete, you could see uh, Ken Kish and his wife. Uh, he is the, uh, master ceremonies behind the cinema wasteland convention in Ohio. And I love that little room. Yeah. That little room was like mostly like people selling like, like board games and and collectibles and the floor was broken in there. And it was like a part of it had like, like rocks or something. It was the weirdest little (laughs) side room. I just love that old chiller. That's the, the crown plaza chiller. And Bill, we we heard your song in that trailer, that oh, disco right. missile yeah, song. Yeah, that was the disco missile song. Yeah. That, that was, I think, yeah, that was, yeah, that was the disco missile decide. And here's Pete, Jack alone. Uh, we shot Pete in his office. Uh, you Pete, can see he has a Gacy in the back. Yeah, Pete's a chiropractor, um, which explains the skeleton, but doesn't really explain the Gacy painting in the background. <laughs> that was, that was Pete's choice. Uh, Pete worked with Wave on Psycho Sisters, but then continued uh, filmmaking on his own from there. Uh, he shot portions of his follow-up feature, uh, Poetic Seduction, uh, at the then Wave Studio in Sicklerville, I believe, in the Wave Cave. In the Wave Cave, yes. Um, his 16-millimeter remake of Psycho Sisters in 1998 uh, features a cameo uh, from Gary and Sal as cops who are briefly seen arresting two sex workers who are played by Tina Krause and Dana Demko. Uh, his other notable directorial efforts include The Erotic Mirror, Sculpture, Creepy Clowns, and most recently, The Cannibal Killer. Now, Psycho Sisters is the only custom feature from Wave, uh, to my knowledge, that was directed by its financier. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that uh, Mick McCleary, who directed uh, Killing a Bobby Green and acted in the Addicted to Murder films, he made a movie with Wave called A Mother's Vengeance, but I'm not really sure what the story is behind that. We couldn't really get a lot of explanation from Gary. So I don't know if that was custom or if that was just like a collaboration, but I'm assuming the latter. Um, but yeah, here we got uh, Pam and Christine 
Um, this famous, this still here was actually used on the cassette soundtrack for Psycho Sisters, which unfortunately I've, I've yet to track down, but I have, have seen it. I bet Pete has some in the garage somewhere. <laughs> I have the CD. Ah, uh, okay. But, uh, yeah, Psycho Sisters is a strange, uh, wave film, uh, considering that the vast majority of the wave movies really, uh, um, concern women being harassed and right. murdered and in this film you have men being harassed and murdered and and um having their penises cut off which right. is really not i don't think there's a, ever a penis in any of the other wave movies period no nope. that's you know? true and yeah. there's also a lot of perspective is is played on the males right you know so it's the killer's perspective on the male tied up in the chair with his legs spread and his underwear right which is also something you don't see throughout the wave catalog. Right. So it's a very, right. very odd um, chicken. Yeah. And you could see how me approaching it from seeing that first, I'm just like, all right, this is just like a regional horror movie. You know what I mean? So it, it didn't really have that wave element of those long, prolonged scenes and everything. Exactly. It was more right. like a real movie. Yes. You yeah, know what this, I mean? Yeah. I would say Psycho Sisters is probably, probably the closest thing to a mainstream horror film. Right. And so this is footage from the premiere of Psycho Sisters, which was at William Patterson College, which is about two miles from where we're sitting and recording this commentary right now. Um, as we mentioned, Bill was apparently at this. Yep, yep. I was there with Todd from Disco Missile. And as you mentioned, like Psycho Sisters was like a staple of a lot of mom and pop video stores. I always just assumed it was like a regional thing, like just that we're in this area. Because, you know, a lot of cold calling was done and, and marketing was done. But it seemed like as we interviewed people throughout the country that most people said, oh, yeah, that was at my local video store exactly. or whatever. So it seemed to have pretty good legs. Um, there was another uh, feature by Wave, which uh, was initially called Zombie Holocaust and then was later renamed Female Mercenaries on Zombie Island which also received a nationwide release uh, through EI. Mm -hmm. um, definitely popped up in way less video stores, but it definitely got around Tower Video um, and some of the places. Yeah, Tower was really um, one of the, the chains that would, that would take really low-budget stuff. I actually uh, found your debut uh, feature there, Caress yes. of the Vampire 2, yeah, I, was, I purchased uh, there. Uh, you know, being a, a a kid that you know was in bands playing in basements and legion halls, and uh, rejected by Columbia Records <laughs> when when they they scouted us, um, getting my first movie into a national video store was like, uh, I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah, you know? yeah. And the movie was made for mm, two hundred and fifty dollars. I think was like as much as we you know spent on it. Um, and uh, to get it into that video store, uh, it was originally uh, sold at Chiller in one version. Um, but when we had the opportunity to get it in the Playboy catalog and to get it into um, Tower, uh, Mike hired uh, a, a cameraman with a, I think it was a Beta SP camera, like yeah. a higher end video, and we shot a new opening. Okay. So the main idea was always that the video store buyers were not going to watch the whole movie they were just going to make sure it was playable 
Right. And that it had some nudity in it. Right. And then they pop it out. So, you know, the, the most of the movie was shot on super VHS. Some of it was shot on camcorder and it was already edited. So then we shot this new footage, which looked really crisp and clear. And yeah. And the rest plays sort of in the dull, grimy <laughs> rightness yeah. of like third generation video. Yeah. But it, there it was on Tower yeah. Video. And then uh, Ruby Honeycat, the star, ended up getting the cover of Draculina magazine. Yeah. Scream Queens Illustrated. Right? Oh, it's, oh it's yeah. Scream, was it Scream Queens yeah, Illustrated? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that was, I remember that issue. And it, that had a Girls of Wave spread in it as well, that issue. So that's Crazy. a really fun issue. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting um, that even in the shot on video world, Wave was sort of reviled. I think primarily uh, because Gary was just totally oblivious to like, the current trends and what was, you know, his stuff was probably grossing more than a lot of shot on video productions at the time without even trying. Uh, I think that a lot of the shot on video movement in the mid nineties was probably fueled by the explosion success of indie film. You know, I mean, you had Tarantino and Kevin Smith and these guys that worked at video stores that were now, you know, having breakthrough mainstream success and I think a lot of these shot on video guys were hoping to become that next hip indie darling. And all of these were trends and, and reveries that Gary probably couldn't give a shit about. So it was yeah, just, no, like, he was just you know, very much focused on yeah. making his custom films and, and shooting constantly as opposed to the other, you know, none of us were doing that. Right. You know, right. So, you know, as it said that a lot of the other filmmakers at that time, you know, were focused on that one film for six months or whatever, whereas Gary was making a movie a day, basically. So, yeah. Uh, this woman being punched here is uh, Chris Stonage. Uh, she was a staple in a lot of the 80s era wave movies. Um, we tried to track her down, but unfortunately found out that she sadly passed away um, at some point. Now, I remember uh, Tina telling us a story about being bound and attached to some kind of wheel contraption in the basement of Gary's house. And that like the cops came due to some complaint and they just like left her there bound <laughs> while they talked it out with Gary. And, uh, and then we're like, uh, can we stay and watch? <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> yeah, my God. Which, uh, I guess, you know, could only happen in, uh, in rural New Jersey. I, I remember when we were, Going through footage, we saw some behind-the-scenes footage of girls that had, you know, sunk in quicksand or something, and they're just, like, nude on Gary's front lawn, hosing each other. Right. And there's just cars driving by. So it's like, yep, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a little while back, we had uh, Dana Demko, and she was saying that uh, she was asked to make a date tape called A Date with Dana. And uh, we tried uh, high and low to find this tape, but we had we had no look. And I, I I wonder if that was one that was basically just created for one guy and then was never circulated. Because the deal kind of was is that you could purchase a custom and you would then receive that tape when it was completed. But then Gary had the rights to distribute it through mail order, through his website and at conventions. But... Uh, we did find out in making the documentary that you could pay a larger sum of money and not have it distributed, where basically you could just, there would be one copy in the world. Huh. So I wonder how many uh, Wave features are out there that were just made. For only one person. For one person. Huh. Um, we may never know. 
So uh, this is a part of the documentary that uh, I find really interesting is where, you know, we're really kind of analyzing how dark some of the material is. You know, um, it's one thing in a horror movie to see someone murdered and you have, you know, the whole plot and everything around this that's, you know, justifying the image. But with these films, um, the, the plots in a lot of them are, are not important at all. Right. They're just a wraparound to showcase the, the violence and to drag out this violence in such an elaborate manner. I mean, sometimes the strangulation scenes are longer than anything in between. The narrative, right. Than the narrative. And, you know, you have to surmise that, you know, men are actually masturbating to women being strangled, women being eaten alive, shrunk down and eaten alive. Right. Like, it's a very strange thing you know when when you know for the most part you know guys are just into girls getting naked and having sex but with this the the sex is the violence right right so it was like pretty weird when when i was making these movies and stuff too just to be like who's this guy buying this movie you know right like, right i feel like you know like do we have like serial killers as fans you know <laughs> and, yeah and even funnier is uh when i met um gill the cannibal cop right and i asked him did you, did you know Wave? He's like, yeah, I, I, I knew Wave. He's like, I had your movie, Cannibal uh, Cannibal Doctor, you know? And, and I, so I brought him the DVD because it all got confiscated oh, when he got arrested. Wow. So I signed the DVD for him and he signed his book for me. So Cannibal Cop was a fan of Wave. Right. But, but it's definitely a strange kind of turn that your brain takes to go, oh, wait, so sexual fetishes can be like, you know, sinking in quicksand. Right, right, yeah. You know, it's a little hard to get around, but it's also pretty dark. Right, right. You know, when you're when you're thinking of it as like, you know, women being hurt is what turns on a lot of men. Yeah. And speaking of hard to wrap your head around, we're at the point where we're talking about knockoff companies. Um, so if you weren't a death fetish enthusiast or you didn't live in the tri-state area, uh, the idea that Wave was successful enough to influence other companies to pop up and make similar content is probably a, a baffling uh, foreign concept, but this was a thing, uh, I think partly due to the simplicity of the conceit. It's like, why are you going to put, you know, 17 zombie extras in makeup and, like, crash a car when you can just, like, have a guy in a ski mask pretend to strangle a girl for 20 minutes? You know what right. I mean? So it's just the simplicity of it. Um, but there was definitely a period of time in the late nineties where strangle theme movies were everywhere at chiller, uh, through mail order. Um, and you know, there was a, a lot of different, a lot of different companies going on here. Um, it had this bit here about Debbie D, you know, allowing someone to hang her for real. Yeah. And that was definitely a shocking moment to emerge from the interviews. Like we had no idea about this. Um, no previous knowledge. It just sort of came out of nowhere. And I just kept bringing it up to her. So it was like, she would talk about it and then move on. I'm like, well, now tell me again, like what happened? You know, we were just completely dumbfounded yeah. by the fact that she would risk her life in order to satiate a fantasy for somebody. It was just unreal. Absolutely wild. Now, speaking of, uh, knockoff companies i mean you were essentially you know in in my eyes the the brian de palma to gary's hitchcock as far as being like <laughs> his chief disciple to kind of rise up in the wake of you know his mail order success with factory 2000 
So did you want to talk about like why you chose to incorporate fetish into your early underground uh, factory 2000 movies? Yeah. Um, it was just that, uh, we knew, I knew that it would, it would, uh, help the sales because that's what people's eyes were on in our catalog. Right. Um, Mike Rosso had done Caress of the Vampire. And I said, hey, I want to go make a movie. He gave me a super uh, VHS camera and a couple of tapes and his light kit. Which is wild because Caress of the Vampire was like their flagship title at right. that time. Like it was the hottest selling like indie title, yeah. like East, you know, like East Coast title. Yeah. They were, like, I don't yeah. even think he was really thinking about it. Right. You know, he's just like, whatever. He's like, just do Caress of the Vampire 2. Right. So that was my. <laughs> That's my my note card. Right. And I was really into Jess Franco's uh, Los Vampiros Lesbos and all the like 70s horror type stuff, all the roughy stuff I really yeah. liked. And uh, I would, had a you know, record label, cassette label, and we were playing um, a lot of heavy noise music, but also like some groovy fun stuff. Yeah. You know, and uh so we incorporated that into this thing, but I wanted it to sell, right? So I got a phone call at Alternative Cinema, and this guy uh, was like, hey, do you have any movies with girls in white socks? Yeah. So I started taking home movies and fast-forwarding, and I'm trying to find stuff. I couldn't find it. So I put it in the movie. Right. For him, that one guy. You know, like, at least one guy one is going like to buy this movie. Yeah. yeah. So I put all this foot fetish stuff into the movie not knowing anything about foot fetish or even caring it's just a lark a right. joke you know and i put some you know uh sex scenes in it and some topless girl stuff and vampirism and rock and roll because that's what i wanted to put in the movie and uh we improv most of it so we didn't really even <laughs> you right. know care yeah. what was the outcome was it was just fun making it you know and whatever was going to be there was going to be there. Uh, a lot of the music was completely improv when we recorded it. Um, and uh, we released it. And it, it was successful at Chiller and, and definitely sold through the catalogs. It got bad reviews in the in Leg Show because it was not a foot fetish movie. Right, right. Um, but then, you know, just seeing more of what, we, what Gary was doing, that's why I went on to do uh, Nude Strangle. And I was a teenage strangler. And... Then I started to realize, well, maybe it's got to be a little bit more serious. Right. And they'll do better if it's like actually mean spirited stuff. And that's when I started doing Infamous Bondage Murders 1 and 2. And, yeah. And um, I mean, for me as a fan, I, I instantly gravitated to the factory stuff because it was like, um, first of all, everyone's younger and hipper. You yeah. Know? It was like exactly. with the wave movies, it's Gary and Sal and, you know, yeah. let's say. And it's like, all right, well, these these guys are young and hip and they dig rock and roll. But the other thing was sort of like I could tell that it was basically like terror, an act of terrorism for the wave fans, because <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm going to call this movie. I was a teenage strangler and you're going to buy it because you want to see a girl get strangled. But you're also going to see, you know, people pooping and, and you know, coat hanger abortions. And like, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. just like. There you go. You know what I mean? Was, like, enjoy your movie. Yeah, you don't get what you want. You get what you deserve. It was, um, my friend Todd and I always kind of looked at where society was going is like becoming this serial killer culture. Yeah. And it was sort of like eating itself from the inside. And like all the consumerism was like so horrific in the mall culture and everything. So 
and the horror film industry had turned very corporate. Yeah. At that like, time, at that yeah, time, you know, like during the nineties, sequels and King adaptations and, yeah, and things like and, that. And, so, and, I mean, and, that's why I gravitated to the shot on video at that time exactly. is because I was not digging what was going on in the mainstream. Way too corporate and yeah. boring. Yeah. And, uh, bland, bland looking, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, making these movies was definitely sort of like a, uh, cathartic act of, you know, vandalism, you know? Yeah. And I mean, as much as you borrowed from the recipe, I mean, Gary was always cool. He shared his table at Chiller with you, and yeah. obviously you guys collaborated. Yeah, yeah he shared, yeah, I think the first Misty Monday convention uh, was at Gary's table. Yeah. So, yeah, he's a great guy. Always gave me a bunch of work and, and uh, never felt like he was getting ripped off or anything, you know, so. Right, right. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it was definitely that kind of thing. I mean, toward... I guess toward maybe the the end of my uh, custom video career, I, I've tried to be a little bit more serious about some of the stuff to 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 give the customer what they actually wanted, right? You know, but it was always like a crapshoot because, you know, it, I never took this stuff very seriously. I mean, Gary took it pretty seriously, but I, again, even he didn't think people would be watching these movies thirty years later, right? Right. You know, and I was always like, eventually, I'm going to make that serious movie. Right. that I really care about. You know, and finally I made Duck, which was probably like, you know, the first time that I was like 100% trying to make something that was like a, you know, had my voice in it, yeah, you know. Yeah, for sure. And then like Devil's Blow you play things and and Upside Down Cross are all like passion product projects, but none of the other movies really were. You right, know, they were right. all just like improv lark. But using those elements cuz I knew it would sell. Stabbing was also a right. thing. Right. Yeah. And um that was uh, Dead Girls Don't Say Goodbye, which you brought up has a hiccuping scene in it. Yeah. Which I was paid $300 to try and get girls to hiccup topless. Insane. Yeah. <laughs> Almost as insane as these quicksand bog uh, uh, scenes here. Yeah. This is undoubtedly one of the most perplexing aspects of the Wave universe. Um, uh, from our research, it seems that drowning and quicksand uh, water customs were among some of the most requested. Absolutely. Um, there were other companies that popped up and just solely focused on these aspects. There was mud puddle visuals. Right. That Aqu stuff doesn't have any plot or, or yeah. dialogue, right? And it's then, just a girl sinking. Yeah. Sinking. And there was Aqua Fantasies, which was all uh, water-based. But um, very, very strange stuff. Yeah. It seems like, you know, if, if you look back at like 40s and 50s, like 1950s television in particular, like a serials or like, a, like Superman and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff, quicksand was always... You right. know, one of the main things. So I think people, young men growing up at that time would see a woman in quicksand right. and get the funny feeling. And then when they turned into adult males, then it's like on loop. Well, yeah, absolutely. And the whole serial aspect is totally on display in the Wave catalog. I mean, here we're looking at Rana, Queen of the Jungle, and this was played like a serial. It had yeah. a cliffhanger at the end and then would pick up and went on and on for years. Um, with Pamela such in the role of Rana. So, I mean, it was, that was totally something that I think was in Gary's aesthetic. Absolutely. Even. Yeah. I think, yeah, Gary is an avid TV fanatic. Right. Right. And, uh, this Rana series, of course, you know, has the snake puppet too, which we're about to see in a moment. Um, which is pretty amazing. And, uh, we also found that he appears in a couple other wave features so mm. if you keep your eyes peeled uh throughout the uh 
the wave cannon, you might see this snake a couple of times. And I, I always loved, you know, when creatures appeared in um, wave movies, you know, from Rage of the Incubus to, uh, you know, there's Curse of the Swamp Creature. I remember picking that up and I'm like, oh, man, Gary's going to have like a cool like creature. And it's just like Sal in a ski mask. <laughs> like that's the creature. He's the creature. He's the creature. <laughs> yeah. But it made enough sense to spawn a sequel, of course. There's Curse of the Swamp Creatures too. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always fun uh, to see that sort of monster aspect, whether they were created with puppets or toys. You know. And later uh, CG. Yeah. Gary started doing uh, CG. Yeah, totally. And then we have uh, Joe and Zach here from Bleeding Skull uh, trying to break down the intricacies of Deadly Sail. <laughs> Which is uh, certainly no easy feat either. Now, uh, Tina mentioned Binder Productions uh, in the knockoff segment. Um, they were another uh, horror fetish company that was around at this time that used Tina a lot. And I remember in a scene that we cut, she said that they, they filmed all their videos in the back of a comic store that they owned. <laughs> and she was filming with them one day and she's just like, oh, you know, why... Why just mail order? Like, why don't you just sell the tapes in the comic store? And they're like, oh, we would never do that. <laughs> it's just totally beyond them. Oh, that's too funny. So uh, here's Laura in her uh, custom-fitted mermaid tail. And uh, in addition to making uh, mermaid custom films, Laura actually does children's pool parties. Um, so you can hire Laura to uh, come and swim around with the kids in her mermaid tail. Um, which is pretty unbelievable. And then you could strangle her. You, yeah. <laughs> if you wanted to, too. And uh, obviously, Gary shot a lot of a lot of films using his pool. Um, you know, the Dead in the Pool series. Um, a lot of them take place in the woods. Um, a lot of that wooded area was um, in the property behind Gary's parents' house. Um, very secluded area. Um, and one of the things that Bill and I were always wondering when we were watching these is like, how do they do all this stuff in the woods and nobody comes? Like nobody walks by, cops never come. Right. It's just so baffling to me. So uh, this is uh, a scene from the agreement, and the girl on all the way to the left of the screen is Dawn Murphy. Um, you'll see her in a lot of clips throughout the movie. Uh, Dawn was a major player in Wave uh, throughout the 90s, um, and Dawn and Dave Castiglione were actually married. Uh, they met through acting in Wave movies, believe it or not, and eventually tied the knot. Uh, Dawn also worked behind the scenes at Wave and helped create many of the sets. Uh, she worked in the office and would ship and package tapes for Gary. Uh, and uh, Gary and, and Sal shot their wedding. Yes. And Dawn grabbed a tape because she's afraid that they would put somehow put it into a wave movie. Right. So the tape was like <laughs> immediately confiscated so that it didn't pop up in a custom. Um, and uh, Dawn went back and forth with us during the making of this uh, film as to whether she wanted to appear or not appear. And she eventually refused. Um, Dawn and Sal are the only two that we located that uh, declined to be interviewed and take part in the documentary, which is. A shame. Uh, I remember uh, we're talking here about Gary's acting. Um, after we showed Gary the first cut of the documentary, um, he liked it, but he said he was upset about all the people speaking ill <laughs> about his Academy Award winning acting performances. 
So it's nice to see that, you know, Gary has a sense of humor about this stuff. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. Now, how many, um, wave films did you actually direct in the grand total? Was it seven? I think it's seven. Yeah. Cause it was going under. Going under. And the thrill gasp strangler. Um, so let me see if I can, going under, um, the cannibal doctor, doctor and cannibal, uh, dinner for two. Yeah. Uh, the du- two duct tape movies. Right. Um, so that's five. Then Thrill, Thrill Grasp, Thrill Gasp Strangler. And uh, what was the other one? Infamous Porno Murders. Oh, Infamous Porno Murders. Right, yeah. Right. So he had some um, hanging interest. Right. So hanging became popular. And I borrowed John Fideli's uh, harness. Mm because he had a, like a rock climbing harness. Yeah, okay. So I started hanging girls in, in Joe's basement because he had this these really good rafters for it. Gotcha. So this is uh, Chiller Theater. Uh, this was Chiller Theater 2017. Uh, Gary was set up to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Wave. Uh, the gentleman that you see at the table with Gary is his brother Jan. Uh, Jan appeared in some of Gary's earliest short films and works. Um, he has sadly passed away since this footage was shot. So it's, it's nice to see him here. Um, and both Pam, you see Pam there, uh, both Pam and Dana, uh, were cool enough to hang out at Gary's table, um, for the anniversary show. So, um, it was a cool little reunion. Um, unfortunately, very, very different animal. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was about to say, unfortunately sales were not like they were in the old days. Um, for Gary, he hadn't been there in many, many years. Um, in the pre-internet days, as we mentioned, a lot of fans would just roam around Chiller looking for titillating content to purchase and bring home. But all of that was changed, as we mentioned earlier. Um, the shows are really geared more towards meeting and taking selfies with celebrities, and they're not really about discovering regional and underground films anymore. Or... Yeah, there's a lot less like DVD, Blu-ray, VHS action. At yeah. those shows that it used to be. It used to be tons and tons and tons of tables of, of content. Yeah. And now it's like a crafts, arts and crafts, like, right. you know, homemade uh, paintings of Vampira and that right, kind of right. Right. thing. So J.R. Bookwalter here was an interesting addition. Um, he was definitely one of the figureheads of the shot on video movement um, through his innovative features as well as the creation of Alternative Cinema Magazine. Uh, his features like Ozone were constantly pushing the boundaries of what could be achieved with video, and I... Wanted to include him because I felt like his work was pretty much the total antithesis of what Gary was doing with Wave. So I was excited to get his feedback on the phenomenon. Um, We just saw a look at some of Gary's latest creations. Uh, Gary has been uh, revisiting a few of his classic series in recent years. He directed a film called The Pinelands Murders, which was basically a remake, a modern remake of Dead North. And uh, he has revisited uh, Sleepover Massacre with Sleepover Massacre, The Curse, and The Necktie Strangler Escapes, which is uh, continuing that franchise, I guess. And this here is uh, Josh Schaefer. It's a friend of mine and a, and a Wave uh, fan who uh, uh, lives very close to uh, where Gary operates and... Um, you know, was kind enough to give his thoughts on uh, the whole wave phenomenon. Uh, we just saw a clip from Lawyer Luau there with uh, Debbie being basted on a platter, which is uh, <laughs> something that could only really exist in uh, in the wave universe. 
Um, um, we kind of wanted to sum up the fact here at the end that uh, many of these actresses, as we mentioned in the case of Debbie, Tina, and Laura, are still working with Gary to this day. Yeah. Um, appear in his most uh, recent feature, Gift Wrapped and Gutted, which is a Christmas-themed uh, sort of slasher uh, production. Uh, those that aren't, like Pam um, and Dana, are still friendly with him. Uh, I think at the end of the day, everyone has an indie movie career off the back of Wave, which yeah. is really pretty astounding. Very much. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. We uh, were oftentimes trying to compute how many hours, um, you know, folks like Tina and Debbie had to spend at Gary's place making Wave movies. Um I mean, when you look at 400, over 400 titles in the catalog, and essentially what we learned was, or found out, was that, you know, Gary usually would shoot scenes for multiple movies at a time. Yeah. So he'd basically put you in an outfit and make you die by strangulation, and then he would put you in another outfit in another room, and... um, you get electrocuted, right, and then, right. then so you go to the hanging room. <laughs> right. And these girls had no idea what movie they were in. Yeah. So Bill and I went into this, you know, very strategically and we're like, oh, yeah, you know, tell us about Danger in Blue. And they're just like, what? What? Yeah, they don't know the titles of the right. movies. They're like, oh, you're a cop. And they're like, oh, I remember being a cop. But that's it. Like, yeah. So um, I think probably with the exception of Laura Giglio, seemed to remember more about each production. Um, but for the most part, the girls had no idea what we were talking about when we were trying to um, get specifics on the film, get yeah. specific on each film and stuff. Yeah. So that was uh, a little difficult. It's almost like trying to ask like a porn actress to recall one of her one day wonders, you know, and it's just like, what? Like, right, right. Because it makes so many films that you would just not remember them i i remember when i was messaging dean paul yeah. who we were trying to get for this documentary but um he also declined actually true um <clears throat> he 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 didn't even remember who i was right and, and it you, was like you directed him in features two, outside of wave yeah two yeah. features yeah you know so that's how much work there was going on at that time yeah. you know yeah. um well we appreciate everybody hanging out with us um, and checking out Mail Order Murder. Um, we certainly want to urge everybody, um, if you're just experiencing Wave for the first time, to go ahead and dip your toes into some of Gary's massive filmography and uh, ride the wave. Yeah, for sure. Take uh, it easy, everybody. Yeah. <laughs>